Welcome back, dear listeners, to another captivating episode of Indubitably. As always, I'm your host, Josh, and with me is the brilliant and insightful Kelly. Thank you, Josh. It's an absolute pleasure to be here again, diving into another stimulating topic with you. And what a topic it is, Kelly. Today, folks, we're venturing into the realm of innovation and creativity, exploring the fascinating world of generative AI, where art and technology merge to create something truly extraordinary. That's right, Josh. Generative AI has undoubtedly left an indelible mark on various industries, from visual arts and music to storytelling and even acting. It's an AI-driven revolution that's transforming how we express ourselves as human beings. Indeed, Kelly. As AI algorithms evolve to produce increasingly sophisticated art, there's a growing debate about its impact on artists, creators, and performers worldwide. We'll be delving deep into the questions that arise from this evolution. Is generative AI a threat to the livelihood of traditional artists, or could it be a valuable tool inspiring new forms of creativity? And let's not forget the acting realm. With the advent of AI-generated characters, we'll explore how this technology influences the very essence of storytelling and performance on the big screen. As we dive into the realm of generative AI, we invite you, our fantastic listeners, to join us on this exhilarating exploration. We'll uncover the advantages, potential pitfalls, and the profound implications this technology has for the future of human creativity. So tune in to this week's episode of Indubitably as we embark on a captivating journey through the ever-evolving landscape of generative AI and its impact on art, artists, actors, and beyond. You won't want to miss this thought-provoking discussion. Remember to subscribe and share the podcast with your fellow thinkers and creators. It's actually not horrible. That's what's killing me. <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. So, that intro was written by AI, specifically by ChatGPT, which some of you may have heard of, which is a language model-based chatbot developed by OpenAI that launched in November of last year. But did you have to ask it or tell it to get it to write it that way for us? My prompt was, quote, I host the weekly debate podcast called Indubitably. My name is Josh and my co-host is Kelly. This week, we'll be doing an episode about generative AI, specifically art and the impact it has on artists, actors, etc. Can you write us a one to two minute introduction for this episode? End quote. The introduction sounds a little bit different than how we normally communicate with each other, but I I didn't hate it. No, what I, I think is funny is that the AI seems to really like its adjectives, though. Oh, sure. Everything is <laughs> fantastic listeners, exhilarating exploration. What What would we have to do to get it to write all of our scripts for us? <laughs> you just want to completely phone the show in and let ChatGPT do it for us? Look, I'm going through a very intense period of my life where it would be nice maybe to get a little bit of help. <laughs> Realistically, I think we would have to do less and less every day that goes by. Like generative AI is getting better and better with each passing minute as it's fed more data from which to is create the right word. If create isn't the right word, I'm struggling to find out what could be the right word. Manufacture? Plagiarize, according to some people. Oh, well, that's a bigger discussion that includes all of AI. So what is generative AI as opposed to, well, actually, what other kinds of AI are there? Right. So today, talking about art, we're going to be focused primarily on generative AI. And this is uh, very reductive, but to put this simplistically... Traditionally, AI learns from data and makes predictions. It has applications in things like self-driving cars, medicine, business analytics. Generative AI is also trained on specific sets of data, but afterwards it creates or generates new and unique data of its own. Although 
I suppose the question of exactly how new it is, kind of the point of today's episode. Exactly. One of the big questions, critiques, concerns about AI, generative AI in particular, is that it is not just generating or creating this art out of nothing. It utilizes existing data that is searchable already out there in the world so that when it receives a prompt, it is able to draw upon all these existing resources and kind of melding them together into what it thinks the output is that you're asking for. Hmm. So some people might call it new. Some people might call it theft. Isn't all art a little bit theft, though? I think so. But I think we'll talk about that later, won't we? Yes, I think that's definitely a big part of this discussion. Um, but what, what kinds of things can generative AI generate? Well, lots. On today's show, we're going to be focusing on art, anything from photos, videos, writing, music. And realistically, if there's something it can't create yet, it probably will be able to real soon. I can think of one really good example of what generative AI can do. Besides the intro to this episode, obviously. Well, obviously. But also, there was an episode we did where you got into it with the computers via ChatGPT, which was our human versus AI episode. Oh, that's right. And I established the dominance of humanity over our robot soon-to-be overlords. Now, that um, might be up for some discussion. But that episode, I think, was very informative because not only do we hear the product of what AI was trying to do and some of the successes that it had and some of maybe maybe its failures, but we were able to get into the behind the scenes of what it actually took to get the AI to produce the type of argumentation that was actually debatable within that context. Yeah, that's true. I, I almost forgot about that episode. It was so easy. But if, if our listeners are looking for a good example of what generative AI is capable of, that might be a good one to check out. Besides, I think, being just an interesting debate in and of itself that took place. While debate itself may not strictly be considered art, although, you know, I think there's an art to the spoken word and uh, creative elements come into constructing a very good argument. That is one aspect of what generative AI can do. But another big debate concerns how students may or may not be able to, or should they or should they not have access to AI in their academics? Right. I mean, if AI can write an entire debate speech for us on the podcast, it can certainly write a debate speech for a student who's competing. Uh, and then it's not much of a jump for it to also write an essay. And there's been a Big controversy, I think, in schools where teachers are trying to figure out how to deal with students that have started using things like ChatGPT to do their work for them. There are programs that you automatically get your assignments put through when you're in college now. I learned that because I was recently in a master's program. You have to submit your paper to the plagiarism checker first. And then once it goes through there and doesn't have any you know, obvious flags, then it goes on to be graded. And there are some programs that are starting to be utilized to also detect AI-generated content, but it goes off of the frequency of words and cliches and phrases that may or may not be written by AI. They just are things like on a dark and stormy night that a human might actually write as well. So how sophisticated are these screening tools? Well, and just with technology in general, I think it's probably a pretty well accepted fact that technology itself advances faster than our ability to deal with technology. <laughs> I can think of any kind of hacking, etc. And so I don't know how realistic it's going to be for schools to try and stay ahead of students on something like this. I think students are going to be very wily when it comes to AI, just like they are with a whole bunch of other things that may or may not be legitimate in aiding them to get through their courses. And no, I will not elaborate on what those things might be. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, instinctively, I feel like an English teacher should be a little bit upset if they assign an essay to their students and the student just goes off and has ChatGPT write it for them. But at the same time, I remember being back in high school and being able to do my math on a calculator and my teacher losing their mind because they were like, well, it's not like you're going to be able to carry a calculator around with you everywhere. 
you need to learn how to be able to do this in your own head. And now we all carry calculators around with us everywhere. I guess it depends on which perspective you're looking at. If you are looking at an academic framework that values actual learning and growth, if you use ChatGPT to write your entire paper, how have you gotten any development in your research skills? Or how have you gotten any better at constructing logical sentences? Um, if you are doing it via ChatGPT, you just learned how to use ChatGPT, and that's kind of the end of the story, isn't it? Yeah, but who cares? <laughs> Maybe we're biased because you and I are more on the liberal arts side of things. But for us, we're thinking, hey, we work in the humanities. We put out a debate podcast. So why do we have to be able to do math? So if a calculator can do it for us, great. But what if you're a mathematician or you're a scientist and you say, hey, yeah, I need to understand what goes into the equations, but why do I need to be able to write an essay about it afterwards? Why can't I just have ChatGPT do that part of my job for me? Because that part of the job is really not that important to me. Well, then if it's so irrelevant, if it doesn't matter whether or not you are demonstrating your knowledge in the written form, why would we assign papers anymore in the future altogether? Maybe we won't. Is that a good thing, though? All right. All right. Well, obviously, there's implications in school, the economy, our personal lives, and, uh, of course, the inevitable human-robot war. Uh, speaking of previous episodes, we did do an entire episode on broader implications of AI and the benefits or dangers it poses for us. So check that out. But for today, I think we're going to be focused on the arts. And with that. The first thing that we can say about it, I think that we would both agree on, is that this tech is obviously still in its infancy, but it is already amazing. Yeah. If you didn't hear it already, look up the song Heart on My Sleeve by Drake and The Weeknd. Except that it's not by Drake or The Weeknd. It's lyrics, music, everything is written, composed, and performed by AI. Do I have to look it up? Did you not hear it already? No, but I also do not care for either of those artists very much. So can I be exempt from this assignment? <laughs> you can be. But but even if you don't like their music, I think just as um, an introduction to what AI is capable of, if I were to play that song for you, I guarantee you would not know that it's not them. Okay. I buy that AI might have the ability to do something to that level of believability. Mm. So that's music. And similar to the quality of that song is the quality of art that generative AI can produce. If you want examples of that, you can go to midjourney.com slash showcase and see just how insane some of this art is. We'll post some of our favorites on our Facebook and our, um, well, it used to be called Twitter. Are we committed to calling it X now? Should we just call it Twitter forever? <laughs> in rebellion to Elon Musk? I feel like I have no choice but to call it Twitter forever. I've been there for over a decade and I don't do well with change. I do think that Musk had a tweet that said X, F, K, A, Twitter. Formerly known as? Formerly known as Twitter. We could call it the app formerly known as Twitter as a, as a Prince reference from oh, now on. Yeah, but that's like a very efficient shorthand. All right, so... We'll post some of our favorites from Midjourney on our Facebook or our app formerly known as Twitter that you can check out. And that will include art created from prompts like Propescular Art in the Style of Peter Lick and Paul Cezanne, Van Gogh, Paris. That's one. I can't wait to see that one. That's quite a quite a descriptor or prompt there. Mm-hmm. We've also got Extreme Close-Up Portrait. The Scary Face of a Chicken. Oh, okay. That piece of art that everybody was lacking in their collection. <laughs> they didn't know it, but they needed it. And lastly, and perhaps for our listeners, obviously, our favorite, Cat Blueprint. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Is that a blueprint of a cat or is it a blueprint created by a cat? Well, if you go to the app formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> you'll get to find out. We're at Indubitably Pod on both of those platforms, whatever they may be called today. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Here's what we'll do for fun for our listeners. 
I have a subscription to Midjourney. So for the Q&A on Spotify, where we ask y'all your thoughts on our episodes, what we'll do is let listeners request a prompt, and I will create that for you on Midjourney and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, post the results. So include the subject of what you want to see and the style of art you'd like to see it in, and I will make that happen for you. That's going to probably open the doors to some really weird stuff. <laughs> I'm I'm committed. I'm committed to this show and our listeners. Well, I can't wait to see what people come up with. That sounds like a really fun idea. You know, I could do it for you too, Kelly, if you wanted. Oh, you, you think I'm as deserving of this as our brilliant and esteemed listeners are? No, but deserving enough that I'm willing to do it. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. Um, does that mean I need to give you a prompt? Yeah. Tell me what you want to see and how you want to see it. There's been some really cool work that's like paper mache style. Some are supposed to be hyper photorealistic. Some are anime style. Uh, really anything you can think of AI can generate. Hmm. I, okay. I would like to see drag queens in the 1970s performing surgery. <laughs> Deal. And what medium of art would you like this to be displayed through? Photography. Okay. Performing. I'm writing this down so I can I can make this happen for you, Kelly. Surgery. Let's do street photography. How about that? Yeah. Let's see if they were performing surgery on the street <laughs> or somehow a street photographer was led into the operating theater. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got that written down. I'm going to make that happen for you. But with the fun out of the way, let's get to the controversy. As we said, in order for the AIs, the computer, as I typically refer to it, to produce this art, it has to learn from a training set of data, which is typically someone else's art. Um, used to be a human. Now, progressively, it's becoming more and more AI training itself. But the origins of this art has to be a human. So the question this brings up is, say the song, Art on My Sleeve, what is owed to Drake or The Weeknd? Well, what is owed to Drake or The Weeknd if a kid picks up an instrument and starts creating music that is inspired by Drake or The Weeknd without using AI? And perhaps they actually do very well with it and get a record deal. Do they owe Drake or The Weeknd anything? Mm. Yeah, I think at its core, that's the most fundamental question of generative art. And that is, where's the bright line for when we've taken too much inspiration or we've copied too much from somebody else that it crosses that line? And just copyright law in general, intellectual property in general, it's really hard to set a black and white answer to that question. There have been some recent cases where uh, human songwriters ended up having to pay royalties to other songwriters or estates because they created music that was too similar to something that was already out there. Like Sam Smith ended up having to, uh, through the courts, it was determined pay back some royalties to the estate of Tom Petty for their song Stay With Me because it was uh, similar, I think, in the chord progression or the melody to Won't Back Down. At the same time, another really famous example of court cases that happened recently was the Ed Sheeran case. I don't know if you followed that at all. Was that the one with Marvin Gaye, the estate of Marvin Gaye? Yeah, that's exactly the one. And Ed Sheeran won that case in part by literally bringing his guitar into the courtroom and playing through like a dozen songs all with the same chord progression to show how as much as we might not like to admit it, all music and probably the case could be made all art is derivative of something that's come before it. So that chord progression is the it was a dark and stormy night of music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As hard as it's going to be to establish legal precedent, you know, just ethically, it's hard to say what somebody owes the people that have come before them. Took a lot of visual arts class in high school. And one of the first things that you learn to do 
is see references from other artists and straight up copy them in some cases. Because if you're learning composition, it's very effective to copy the work of somebody else who has a well-composed piece and then start to learn from that to hopefully create your own art that is influenced by, inspired by. But I've seen classes where every student produces their own starry night. They need to burn those paintings. Yeah, or in music, I would imagine the vast majority of people, they start off learning music uh, through cover songs. Mm -hmm. Here's a song that everybody knows, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, Mary Had a Little Lamb, whatever it is. And then once you get good enough at copying other people's work, then maybe in the future, you're at the point where you can start to create your own, which even though it's quote unquote, your own, I think it would be impossible not to be influenced by the music that you've heard previously. Have you seen the Barbie movie yet? You say yet as if it's inevitable that I'm going to watch it. You you simply must. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> there's a great interview with Greta Gerwig, the director, where she lists about 20 different inspirations that she had from movies like Singing in the Rain or Hitchcock films or whatever, and references a specific aspect of how that manifested in the Barbie movie. And you can see a side-by-side from what the original film did and then what she did in the Barbie movie. And they're not like for like, they're not exactly identical, but the the inspiration is so obvious. Does she owe numerous, countless creators then? Because her art wouldn't have come about this way without the influence of all those other films and directors. Obviously, everybody has to take some form of inspiration from somebody else. And obviously not all of that inspiration raises to the level of plagiarism, but at some point it has to, what is that bright line? Like at what point, and specifically bringing it back to AI generated art, at what point do we think that AI generated art takes too much inspiration from its training data or the person who's putting in the prompt makes it too close to some other real person, a real artist that came before them to where they do owe them some sort of royalties or some sort of credit? Mm-hmm. The obvious answer would be anything that is identical to an existing piece of art that maybe they claim was created by the artist who created the original piece of art. And they try to essentially pass off a forgery as being authentic. Mm. Yeah, I think forgery is probably a pretty straightforward answer. What about, though, our example of Heart on My Sleeve? Is somebody using the likeness, whether that be in movies in the future, visual likeness, or whether that be the likeness of the voice of somebody like Drake or The Weeknd? If you create Drake's voice, do you owe Drake credit or do you owe Drake, more importantly, maybe money? Well, This is interesting because you poisoned the well for me with this song because you told me that this is who it was going to sound like before I had a chance to listen to it. So the question then might be, if people listen to it without being told, this is supposed to sound like Drake in the weekend. If they hear it in the wild without any preamble, would they mistake it for being Drake in the weekend organically? That's interesting. Another thing that we could use is not necessarily the output of the song, right? Like how it's received by audience or the how art is received by the viewer. But there's a reason that I picked one of the examples that I did earlier in terms of photos that we're going to be posting on our social media. Uh, The one I'm talking about is crepuscular art in the style of Peter Lick and Paul Cezanne. So this is a specific prompt that you're able to use in mid-journey and similar art generating AI where you can specify, I would like this to be done, quote, in the style of X. So even though you are asking the program, the AI, whatever it is, the being, to create new art that hasn't been created before, so it's not a forgery, you are specifically asking it to copy a particular artist. Perhaps that would be a good bright line for when credit is owed. But in the style of, it doesn't necessarily mean copying. There are plenty of people who create art in the style of. 
existing artists and it wouldn't be considered copying or infringement upon their like intellectual property. But that's where this might be different because of the way that generative AI works and because of the training set of the data, you would literally input actual works of these artists into that data so that it then could create something coming out of it. So there is a direct link between their work and their work is necessary to exist and be input in order for the AI to output something in the style of, right? As opposed to a human artist, maybe they've seen the picture once before. Maybe they don't even remember seeing it. Maybe it just sparked something in their mind that's sort of festered for the last 20 years and now it's coming out on paper. It just seems more direct of a process when AI is doing it as opposed to a human. Perhaps, but I think that's still a little too fuzzy to say one way or the other that it's definitely a, a form of theft. But I think it's so clean. If we were thinking about this on a legal level, it would be easy to take to court. If you include my name in your prompt for creating generative AI art, then you owe me something, whether it's credit or whether it's royalties. Keep my name out your mouth. Okay. Okay, Will Smith. Um, so are you <laughs> going after the person who put the prompt in the system or are you going after the authors of whatever the AI programming language or uh, actual like algorithm? It, like who, who, who do you blame for that if you're seeking like who's legally responsible for this form of theft? Midjourney doesn't plagiarize people. People plagiarize people. Okay. Are you uh, realizing now that maybe if you use that argument that anything you put into Midjourney, therefore, would be your responsibility if it's deemed a theft? Yeah, no. And, and I have actually, just to be perfectly upfront, I have uh, messing around. I haven't monetized it in any way, but I have put in uh, prompts in the past that were blank in the style of blank because there's somebody that draws something really cool. I like their style. I just wish that I could get that person to draw, I don't know, a cat for me. And they haven't drawn a cat before, but now AI can do it for me. I guess I've never really looked at AI as being there to do that. I look at generative AI, especially with the visual arts, to create impossible scenarios and make them real. So this is gonna this is gonna sound really horrible. But I was when I was playing around with AI. Last year, I one of the prompts I put in was black and white photography of <laughs> Grimace, I, like Grimace from McDonald's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, testifying in the Nuremberg trials. <laughs> Kelly, do we do we need to have a conversation here off <laughs> off air? But I wanted to see what was the most unrelated two things that could be put into the same output something so absurd that you don't have any existing reference materials for it and you create something out of the blue that has never existed before. Well, and I guess the counter to that would be when you say black and white photography, I think for whatever reason, Ansel Adams. Sure. So Grimace at the Hague in the style of Ansel Adams. I suppose the argument would be that if you wanted Ansel Adams to <laughs> take that photograph, you should be paying him to take that photograph. Oh, good luck making that happen. <laughs> I can see the motivation behind this, though, because if you have these incredibly successful artists, they've obviously unlocked some sort of secret of the tastes of society, right? What are we as humanity attracted to? And they were able to make a living or at least a name off of catering to whatever that taste was, right? They targeted with their music, with their art, what have you. And so we have new artists that are using AI to try and tap into that same success and create arguably new work, but that relies on what this original artist was able to figure out. But if the original artist is the one who set the tone, they were the trailblazer. Everything else that comes after it would not have the originality, the originator of the uh, movement or format or style had had. And everything else would seem like a copy that was less valuable. That's why it's 
like such a big important thing to know who came first between the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. What was the original boy band <laughs> of the era? Because there's so much more credit that you give to the person who led a movement than you give to people who are also talented, but who were hangers on in a movement. Okay, you, you might say that in terms of credibility, but as far as profit goes, isn't the entire music industry now, we mentioned before Ed Sheeran, hey, these are the chords that work. So we are all just going to replicate the same chords. You can look to the movie industry. They don't make new movies anymore. They just keep pumping out Fast and Furious and Marvel movies. You can look to art now or TikTok. I know you like the TikToks, Kelly. That's the whole idea behind trends is one thing worked once. And now all we do is recreate it until we've beaten it into the ground so much that we're moving on to the next thing. We'll see how much more you want to besmirch the film industry after you watch Barbie. Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like Barbie proves my point more than anything. You how many Barbies are there? You haven't seen it. Okay. Barbenheimer. You, well, I haven't seen Oppenheimer. Did you watch Oppenheimer? I didn't, but I'm more likely to watch Oppenheimer than Barbie. We need to create some sort of bet between the two of us. And if I lose, I have to watch Oppenheimer. I do not want to watch it. And if you lose, you have to watch Barbie. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> if listeners have an idea for what kind of challenge we can implement for that, that'd be great. But I take your point that people see a formula for success and they say, that worked once, let's do it again. And that's why we have things like sitcoms and songs about how pretty girls are and things like that, because you can't just have one person do it once and they get the monopoly on that topic or that format forever. But it starts to get tired when more people do it, when you have a saturation of the market. What feels wrong about that, though, is that, especially when it comes to art, the person that originated the trend might have spent years creating this thing that is relatively new, unique, novel. And after all that work that they did to be creative, and produce something original, everybody else just profits off of copying it. Mm -hmm. and, and it's so much easier for everybody after the first person, and yet they get all of the profit from it. And, and sometimes the original creator is, is lost. You ever watch Shark Tank? Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of ideas in there that are easily replicable. Like a lot of people could take what they see on there and like make it themselves or find a way to cheaply produce it. But I saw one that I thought there's no way after this is on Shark Tank that there aren't 20 different sellers making this exact same thing. Let me guess. Hmm. Mr. Buddy. What's Mr. Buddy? Oh, the sponge. Oh, Scrub Daddy? Scrub Daddy, Scrub Daddy with the smiley face in it. Did you buy an off-brand one that's called Mr. Buddy? <laughs> I don't know. That's just my memory playing tricks on me. It should have been called Mr. Buddy. <laughs> Okay, well, the example I saw is probably about as ridiculous as a sponge being called Scrub Daddy was for women who on their wedding day may need assistance moving their dress out of the way if they needed to use the restroom. Mm -hmm. And it's like an underskirt, a petticoat that they could use to kind of gather the skirt up so they wouldn't have to hold it with their own hands. You tie it and then the skirt's completely out of the way and doesn't have, you know, go on the bathroom floor whatsoever. It's all clean and tidy. So the idea, yeah, there's probably going to be some profit that is garnered by the first person who did it, but they'll, they're going to immediately be pushed out of the market by all of the copycats. Well, and it's funny you bring up Shark Tank because Kevin, Mr. Wonderful, that's one of the questions that he asks in almost every episode is, what is proprietary about this? Like, why do I have to give you $500,000 for 10% of your company? when I could just open up a factory in China right now and make this myself and put you out of business. He's kind of a jerk, but he's got a point, right? Well, and that's kind of the point of this episode is, is what is proprietary about art that now I can't go on mid-journey, spend 15 seconds writing a prompt and produce a concept that it might've taken you years to come up with. And then what's the point in even creating art anymore other than for the pure love of the creation of it? If 
there is no way that people are really going to own their product anymore. And this reminds me for another analogy of Amazon Essentials, you know, the brand? Oh, the Amazon store brand. Mm -hmm. Do you know how they come up with their products? Do they just copy the ones that are already out there? Well, yeah, Amazon has the data on all of the best selling products that are sold on its platform. And so what they do is they take the number one best selling handbag and they just copy it, call it Amazon Essentials and boom, there you go. The number one best selling table, the number one best selling tent tarp, the number one best selling umbrella, whatever. Is this any different than the Equate, which is the Walmart brand version of oil of Olay lotion I got the other day? It's even in the same shape bottle, same shape packaging and same scent for the formula. No. So so these huge brands can basically copy a great idea. And then because of their scale, they can produce it for cheaper. They can market it more efficiently. Like Amazon literally will just put its own brand as your first search result when you're looking for something. And they have all of these advantages over the original creator that allow for them to profit off of somebody else's idea. This seems like a pretty direct analogy to AI art. Somebody puts in all that work to come up with something novel and original. And now me on my computer, knowing nothing about art, can recreate it with a couple button pushes. People will see the Amazon essentials. They'll see the great value of cleaning spray as opposed to the Procter & Gamble produced whatever, whatever. And some people might choose to buy the cheaper one because they don't care that much about it. But most of the brands that are being copied by Amazon, by Walmart, what have you, are known and trusted. And there's a lot of cachet for being the first in a market and having established that foothold that allows them to continue to have their market share even when there are copycats. So wouldn't that also be the case with art in some cases as well, that people would know the trusted name in art and anything that came after it would just be, you know, the store brand version. Yeah, well, and I do think we'll talk about like consumer responsibility later, but I do think there are some people out there who see the problems that AI art might be leading us towards. Uh, one in particular I can think of is I've been using Photoshop for years and Adobe has come out with their own generative AI. They call it Firefly. And what they did that's unique was Adobe Firefly has been trained on open source art only. Their input set of data that they trained their AI on only includes material that they had the rights to, either open source, creatively, commonly licensed, or they actually owned the copyright for it. So maybe a, a more ethical way, but at the same time, I, I will tell you, I did try their program and it is significantly lower quality than something like Midjourney. And also it sounds like that ethical standard comes at a cost because I don't have Photoshop. It's not in my budget to have Photoshop and a lot of people can't afford it. So, you know, it's kind of like fair trade linen pants that cost $60. It's like a nice idea in theory, but it's not really accessible to the vast majority of people. Yeah, I have to pay $30 a month for my Adobe membership so that I can make cute thumbnails for the podcast. And that's all you ever do with it. And you don't create any other art except just for indubitably. <laughs> that's what it seems like nowadays. <laughs> um, Despite how entertaining I found generative AI when it comes to creating absurd art, art that apparently might also be problematic and we need to talk about later, I think that there's a really clear issue with how obvious it is that it's been AI generated, especially in a lot of cases where it's depicting people. There was an instance recently on Twitter, artist formerly known as Twitter, of a photo going around that showed purportedly Jennifer Lawrence in like a bikini and she looked at least a foot taller than she is in real life. And then she also had six fingers on each hand. So it was pretty obvious that there have been some sort of involvement by uh, non-human means unless she sprouted extra fingers and uh, six inches of height since we last saw her. That alone is a pretty big tell for AI art. But even when it's less obvious, 
there's just something not right about a lot of the way that people look. You see the the the, the ick. Well, I think what's interesting about it is it reminds me of an old Star Trek episode where Data. Are you familiar? Yeah, I, I maybe I didn't watch a lot of Star Trek. I knew who Data is. All right. So for our listeners, Data is the android on Star Trek. And he was playing, uh, I believe, the violin in a concert. And his performance of this violin piece was literally perfect. He had every note, the exact right amount of time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because it was perfect, it felt unnatural and it turned out to be a lesser performance. And so he went in this episode on this existential crisis about how can I be human as opposed to perfect? And I think that AI art kind of has that same problem. Well, especially when depicting people, people contain flaws. Even the most prized specimen of, of human would have something, a slight asymmetry, something that is just lacking this like manufactured effect to it that indicates that it is still human. Yeah, I was messing around with a friend uh, on Mid Journey the other day and we were putting in prompts and it was spitting out people and we made the comment, "Oh my god, every single person that this AI is exporting is gorgeous." And so of course, we were like, "Let's see if we can make Mid Journey make an ugly person." And so we input the ugliest thing we could think about which is obviously kelly what is it are you talking about ugly as in their soul or no just well both probably both was it donald trump no we asked it to make a ginger wow <laughs> so aren't I, I you put ginger in, shut up <laughs> <laughs> i'm strawberry blonde thank you okay um we asked it to put in uh, ginger, like pale skin. I mean, we, we, we threw in all sorts of random things and what it came up with was like the best looking redhead ever. And so mid journey literally cannot make an ugly person, or at the very least, I have not yet found the prompt that, that produces that. What if you used a prompt like with slight asymmetry in uh, their face or something to actually tell it to create an imperfection. I know you think the ginger part alone was the imperfection, <laughs> but like an actual slight variance between two of their features, like a slightly larger ear than the other. I, I might try that, but I literally asked it to make an ugly person and it couldn't. The prompt was legitimately imagine an ugly redheaded, like freckled boy. And it was like, nope, it made the supermodel version of Ron Weasley. I think the real lesson here is that everybody is just beautiful. And you finally now have any pretense that says otherwise pulled from you. And all of humanity expresses itself in its most perfect, gorgeous form. And you no longer think of gingers as ugly people. Dang, maybe AI is more human than we are. <laughs> but I think that there's something to be said about humans' rejection of perfection when it comes to art. Like we actually appreciate some kind of flaw in our art and that that makes music have feeling to it, right? That makes art, street photography, for example, street photography is not technically perfect from a compositional or lighting standpoint. Oftentimes it's incorrect, but what makes good street photography is the moments that it's able to capture, the humanity it's able to capture. And so far... I guess we should preface everything we say in this episode with so far, artificial intelligence can't generate that. Well, we, as you are going to try with my prompt, you're going to see what it does with street photography and how organic a tableau we get out of it. <laughs> That's very true. So as of right now, artificial intelligence is sampling from artists and creating alongside of them. But at some point, if nothing is done, it seems inevitable that it will just replace them. And this is actually in large part what the Hollywood writer's strike is about and a big reason that actors are showing up in firm support of the writers as well. Right. The Screen Actors Guild 
had members showing up for the WGA strike well before <laughs> the actors themselves went on strike. And the the common theme was the current model of media and the future efforts that studio heads and the owners of these businesses are going to take will destroy the livelihoods of people who are working so hard in the industry. And uh, AI was a really big part of that conversation. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, there's an episode in the new Black Mirror season where uh, Selma Hayek <laughs> is played by a computer-generated version of Selma Hayek. Mm-hmm. Kind of a mindfuck, but entertaining and thought-provoking. Yeah, it's called uh, Jonah's Awful, and it addresses a big critique that actors right now have for the possibility that studios are going to take their likeness and just put them into constructed computer simulated scenes, not even need them to act anymore. And that goes in line with how a lot of the studios have been behaving already towards actors. For instance, there was somebody on Twitter when it was still called Twitter who said I was doing a non-speaking role on Law and Order. And that meant that I only got a certain pay scale that day. And then somebody went in and dubbed lines that were attributed to my character after the fact. So they got paid for voiceover work. And my quote unquote likeness seemed to be talking on the screen, but I never performed any actual spoken words. So I didn't get paid. This is why writers and actors are striking now, because with the level of AI as it exists, they are not currently replaceable. But with how quickly AI is advancing, it would be hard to believe that in a few years' time, they won't be. So I think that they are trying to lock down protections for themselves as, uh, you know, as a career, that they can extend the life of their industry for as long as possible before it's inevitably taken over by machines. In this instance, unlike a lot of other industries that we're looking at where AI or the machines altogether are a threat, the entertainment industry, for the most part, has a lot of strong unions involved, which I think is going to curb the behavior of the studios and mega companies in a way that it won't for a lot of other industries that don't have those same labor protections. So it'll be very interesting to see if we actually get to that inevitability with the entertainment industry, like we apparently will be getting with things like manufacturing in the future. Although a lot of manufacturing does have strong unions as well, but where it's happening with the AI discussion and, and acting and writing, I think is a very unique example of how labor can fight back against what is perceived as theft. Well, if you think about it, uh, and we talked in our original AI episode about automation, factory workers and those types of jobs automation is much more advanced than generative AI is. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have the same kind of bargaining power uh, because they are, as of right now, replaceable by machines. So if they ask for too much, companies just say, all right, you can walk out. We don't need any of you because we have robots now. And again, that's where I think just in terms of the time we're at, writers and actors are realizing that if they don't lock down protections now, they're about to be replaceable as well. It's interesting that you brought up the Black Mirror episode because that's a Netflix property and Netflix has gotten into a little bit of hot water in the age of the the striking actors and writers because they did put out a job posting for a product manager on a machine learning platform being the focus of that which would pay $900,000 per year. Wait, what? Yeah, I mean, that's good money. Can I get in on this? 900000 a year? Mm-hmm. So they're paying somebody a million dollars a year to babysit a computer? It's to help steer the AI to create all of the things that they used to, I guess, need actors and writers to do. But they they got some attention uh, obviously, because that's one of the central themes around the strikes right now is that machine learning, AI, whatnot, is going to destroy all these jobs and the livelihoods of the people who've done all the work up to this point. So they have the job posted still as of uh, just a few days ago, 
but they de-emphasized the AI portion of the job in the in the listing itself, kind of because of the heat that's coming from the discourse around AI at the moment. But they are still looking for a person to fill this job, and they are still paying them nearly a million dollars a year when they actually hire them. And this is one of the criticisms that writers have had in in this strike is that writing budgets for these studios have pretty much stagnated while the budget overall has blown up. And they point to that indicating that more and more money is shifting towards things like this, $900,000 a year for somebody to babysit a computer versus, you know, some of these writers are, according to them, barely making enough money to just have a livable wage in Los Angeles. Have you seen, okay, you're not on the TikToks, we've established that, but at any point, have you come across actors who are dispelling some of the myth about how much money they're making and and writers as well, and they're sharing what their actual residual checks are? No. There are people who wrote for very prominent television shows or acted in incredibly successful shows, and they're getting residuals in the amounts of like 23 cents. And maybe they'll have a bunch of all these residuals add up and they get one check for like $30. Here's the thing though. Their job is art. And I'm not trying to say that to belittle them, but uh, for example, I would love to be able to just do this podcast for a living, but I can't because as of right now, there's not a big enough demand for it. Like you and I, Kelly, are we owed a livable wage for doing this just because this is our dream job and this is what we would like to do and this is the career that we've chosen? Not that this is a career for either of us, but hypothetically, um, if we decided that we wanted this to be our career, are we then owed more than a a 30 cent residual? Or should we have gone to like trade school? The difference is we went into this podcast knowing that this was not going to be our payday. We knew that at the moment we're not going to monetize it or have advertising or whatever. And we don't have any expectations that it's going to take care of us. But acting and writing are very different because up until the recent changes in technology, it has been a way for people to make at least a living wage. Now, a lot of the actors, they don't get paid very much upfront. And so they end up keeping a lot of their other jobs. So you might have your uh, table bust by somebody who is on Orange is the New Black or something like that because they didn't get paid very much up front. And that model was set up so that the residuals would continue to take care of them because the time between when the production actually began and whether or not it got picked up at all and then when it actually did air can be months or years. So it was meant to sustain people by giving them part of the money they earned up front and then the rest of the money they were owed over time with residuals. And the problem is that now many people in SAG are not making the minimum $26,000 a year. That's like a pretty low amount of money for an annual minimum that would get them health insurance through their union. And it used to be the case that they would probably be able to get that if they were consistently working. All right. That certainly seems fair in a world where the actors are doing the acting. But if we take this episode and the idea of generative AI to its logical conclusion, do we owe future actors, right? Do we owe the acting industry anything at the point where studios are able to replace them completely with AI? We would lose the incentive for people to want to become actors in the future if there is no means of making money. Maybe they'll do like Summer Stock or the Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, but they're not going to want to go through the rigor of being in the industry if they're not making very much money. So we would be left with either completely AI-generated characters that are, they don't resemble any people we know. That would be our new, our our fresh new face on the CW this fall. Or we would have 20,000 movies that starred Marilyn Monroe because we licensed her face from her estate. So the the innovation of the industry would completely fall apart if that happened. At least we wouldn't have any gingers. So you're self-hating ginger, we've realized this. (laughs) Strawberry blonde. (laughs) Here's the, the next question. Let's say that 
as is the case with most capitalist endeavors, the studio slash corporation slash insert evil X here wants to make as much profit as possible. And that's why there's a shift towards automation, whether that be with production labor, what have you, or now artists, actors, songs, etc. And let's say we as people would like that to stop. If we did want to control it, how would we? Are we talking government regulation? That that seems to be what the actors and writers are pushing for, not necessarily government regulation, but legal regulation, I suppose, at, at the very least. Or would it be consumer responsibility? What do you think? Well, I do agree with what you said earlier, that there's an inevitability to this, that AI is only going to get better and better over time. And there's a stronger likelihood of its of its use in all sorts of industry, especially the entertainment industry. So I don't know that there's a way to restrain the industry without like violating the First Amendment in the United States, for example. If it is a form of art and it's and it's throttled with the law, that would probably get overturned in the Supreme Court. So I think the most viable way that things can push back against that would probably be through, as I often have said, voting with your wallet, which is the consumers of the industries themselves need to tell the studio executives what they would actually like to see in this industry. Because ultimately, if we don't buy it, they have no incentive to make it. Like there's a possibility that the SAG and WGA uh, strikes may ask for consumer boycotts. They haven't yet, but they possibly could ask that people who side with them to stop uh, consuming those pieces of media altogether. Don't go to the movies, don't renew your Netflix subscription, what have you. But other people can you know, do that themselves without having to be told by a, a union to do it. At its core, some of this might be our fault. I mentioned before that writing budgets have stagnated at a lot of these shows. And meanwhile, the overall budget has blown up. And why is that? Because of things like Game of Thrones, we don't really care about the writing. We care about boobs and dragons. And it costs more money to make dragons than it does to have good writing. But as consumers, that's what we've chosen we want to see. Or the last time that writers struck, it worked really well because this was before streaming. So when the writers struck, we as consumers literally had nothing to watch. But now they're afraid that this strike is not going to be effective because there is such a backlog of material for us to stream that even if they don't produce anything new, it'll be years or the way that I watch Netflix days <laughs> before before we realize that nothing new is being put out. And, and that takes a lot of bargaining power away from the writers or actors guilds and puts it in the hand of the studios. Finally, I'm going to get through the backlog of all these shows I've been meaning to get to. <laughs> the accessibility and just amount of content that's out there right now. Again, as that grows, original artists are going to have less and less bargaining power. And I think that's kind of the theme of this entire episode. As generative AI develops in its ability to produce art on par with humans, we have less and less of a need for human artists. And we are going to have to decide, uh, hopefully before that point, whether that's something we feel bad about or not. I suppose in some cases, maybe we're not losing a whole lot because we don't go to the Met to look at new artists. We go and look at the Monets that are there. It's like when you go to a concert and they like, here's one off of our new album. And you're like, boo. <laughs> like we we don't <laughs> want new stuff. We want the stuff we already know. So. Is AI uniquely contributing to the dismissal of innovation amongst artists? No, I don't think so at all. Right. I, I mean, if you think back to it, you brought up sitcoms before. Are the writers who are producing post-Friends era sitcoms, can they really complain if generative AI comes through and does pretty much what they're already doing? I, I know you like the show, but can Parks and Rec's writers complain about something coming through and copying them when they're basically copying The Office? 
You want to get into that argument right now? <laughs> shots fired. Shots no. fired. Or, or you know, Marvel movies. I brought up Fast and the Furious movies. How much criticism can those artists really levy when they're doing what AI is doing that they're complaining about? Now, all of that being said, somebody did have to write Friends. Somebody did have to write The Office, the original one, I suppose, because even The Office is generative. Somebody did have to write the original comic books. And so, yeah, I could see arguments that we every once in a while, we are going to lose something original. But realistically, what, 90, 95% of the time now, everything we consume art-wise is derivative. So there is still some room for originality and for people to be receptive of it. But for the most part, they're the same recycled tropes over and over again. And take this from somebody who's read like 300 books in the last year. It's kind of the same story all over again every time. But we like it. It's comfortable for us to have the predictability of how it's going to look and sound and feel for specific art forms. We know how sitcoms are always going to tie things up at the end of 22 minutes. And that's very comfortable for our little like animal brains. <laughs> All right. And there you have it, folks. Another mind bending episode of Indubitably is now officially in the books. Oh, what an adventure it has been, Josh. Generative AI really knows how to shake things up in the creative world. You got that right, Kelly. It's like having a quirky robot Picasso as your art buddy. And Imagine AI-generated actors taking over Hollywood. I wonder if they'd ever demand a battery break during a dramatic scene. Well, they do say that the future of entertainment is electrifying. Speaking of electrifying, we hope this episode sparks some neural connections in your creative cortex. <laughs> yes, and remember, even with all this AI wizardry, you can't automate the incredible passion and talent of human artists and actors. So, fellow indubitably enthusiasts, keep exploring, keep creating, and keep embracing your uniqueness. We appreciate you more than a robot appreciates its charging station. And that's a lot. So, until next time, this is Kelly. And Josh. Wishing you an artfully absurd, laughter-filled week ahead. Oh my god, why is AI so corny? Hopefully our listeners don't think we wrote that outro. Is it bad I really also didn't hate this either? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>